Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Most everyone recognizes Purple Rain by Prince, a Grammy award-winning album that was engineered by my guest Susan Rogers. But do you know why you love this song or album? According to Rogers, it's determined by seven musical aspects from authenticity to timber that we respond to based on our personality and experiences. We'll learn more about our musical sweet spots next on Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Remember when this was everywhere, all the time? Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black. Got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse. Ha, you can whip your Porsche. I've been in the valley. You ain't been up off that porch now. Old Town Road by Lil Nas X was so popular. Do you know why? It's hard to explain why we love what we love. And that's why the algorithms of popular streaming services like Spotify often get us wrong when they suggest things for us to listen to. Our listener profiles are more complicated than if you liked that, you'll love this. According to Susan Rogers, a celebrated audio engineer and record producer, we all have unique listener profiles determined by how we respond to seven musical elements, such as lyrics, melody, and timbre. She's laid it out in her new book, This Is What It Sounds Like. Susan Rogers is my guest today. We're going to unpack the elements, and we want to hear from you. What's your favorite piece of recorded music and why? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always call us, 866-733-6786. Susan Rogers, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm just grinning from ear to ear just hearing that snippet of <laughs> Old Town Road. What a great record. And and it's hard to dominate the pop charts. What an accomplishment. Hats off to Lil Nas X. Yeah, you work. say... You're grinning from ear to ear. What is that feeling of liking a piece of music? What is the rush we feel? 
Oh, there's so many ways in which music can give us that rush of endorphins, a little bit of dopamine release. Now, uh, I mention seven dimensions of music listening in the book because these are things I learned either over 22 years in the recording studio or earning my Ph.D. in music perception and cognition at McGill University in Montreal. So I learned a lot about the ways in which music can make us smile. And the interesting thing is all we need is one. One aspect of a record can be enough to make us say, yeah, this is working for me. When that happens, you can safely ignore the other elements. In the case of Lil Nas X, it's not my favorite record. I, I admit I haven't bought it. I don't, I don't stream it regularly. I'm happy to hear it. The things I like about it are, well, I remember um, where I was when that record came out, and I appreciate the sound design. I, I think the lyrics are, are charming. I enjoy it. It's not my love at first listen record. It's not the kind of record that occupies my playlist, but I still like it well enough. So just for purposes of this discussion, you're using the term record to, to mean what? To mean a piece of recorded music. Um, we go into the recording studio and you press record, which might be on a tape machine from my era, or it might be on a laptop from the modern era, but you still have to capture a performance, either a live performance or something that's been programmed. So you make a record and then that record goes out into the world as vinyl or cassette or CD. Mom just told me recently that the kids are into the CDs now, which is interesting. Or it's just streamed for many of us, but it's still a recording, so I refer to it as a record. Okay, and so if if that's a record, what is a song? Uh, a song is, uh, technically speaking and practically speaking, it's the melody and the lyrics. Mm. So you can take the song Autumn in New York, which just happens to be one of my favorites. You can play it on a variety of instruments. You can play it at a variety of tempos. You can sing it high or low. You can, uh, you can, I suppose, change some of the words, and it would still be the same essential thing. So a song can be rendered in many different ways. Think of a song as a piece of fabric, and then think of the garment as the record. Take a piece of fabric, make a shirt out of it, or pants, or an apron, it's all the same fabric, but it's a different garment. A record is what we've chosen to do in the recording studio to take that song and bring it to life. Mm. We've chosen its form. I see. So you mentioned two of the seven dimensions just then in your answer. You talked about melody and lyrics as you were describing mm -hmm. the song. So let's get into that a little bit. Can you explain melody as a dimension um, and how it sort of plays a role in making us love a certain record or a song. <laughs> mm. Our preferences for melody start evolving before we're even born. So in the last trimester of pregnancy, in our liquid environment, the womb, we can hear mom's voice and mom's speech prosody. We can hear dad's voice, too, when dad puts his mouth right there on mom's tummy, and uh, baby can process sound at that at that early stage. So we begin to learn what voices are signifying when they have certain 
pitch contours. After we're born, we learn that when mom's mad, this is how her voice goes. And when mom is really trying to get us to calm down, this is how her voice goes. And when she's or dad is reprimanding us, this is how the voice goes. So we're beginning to learn how amplitude, volume, intensity, and pitch, and timing relate Mm. to feelings, to emotions. Then we begin using our own voices, and we learn how our voices get a response out of people. As we get exposed to music, we learn this is the melody that's popular in my culture. This is how my home, my my culture, expresses the culture's emotion. So you get very attached to melody because on some level it reflects how people communicate their feelings with one another. It's amazing to think about how early that forms the songs I like as an adult or the records I like Mm -hmm. as an adult were determined, uh, or not predetermined at all, but of course I was exposed to ones that I would find pleasant as an adult when I was in the womb. Yes. At the same time, you say lyrics are another really important piece of all of this. Can you talk a little bit about the role that lyrics play and, and why For some people, it's the lyrics that Mm. make them love a song or record. Yeah, the role of lyrics has never been more highly valued than in this modern era. Do you know, um, I'm old enough to remember, that in the 60s and 70s, there would be on the Billboard Top 100, there would be a lot of instrumental hits. Not anymore. 2013 was the last time that uh, an instrumental record cracked the Billboard Top 10. People... um, When they seek out music, when they choose a piece of music to listen to, are hoping that this music is going to function for them. It's going to solve a problem, or it's going to match their mood, or it's going to change their mood, or it's going to give them an autobiographical memory and let them experience nostalgia. They want it to do something for them. Lyrics are very effective at connecting music to ourselves, to our self-identity. I'll tell you something that surprised me. Uh, My co-author, Ogi Ogas, is also a PhD. He and I did some research for this book, and we asked 1,695 listeners in the U.S. a simple question. When you listen to your favorite music, what do you picture in your mind's eye? What do you visualize? Over three different surveys, the most common answer was autobiographical memories. People often choose music to be reminded of the people and the places and the events in their life that are important to them. But the second most common answer consistently was that people make up a story based on the lyrics. That was very interesting to me. That's not my go-to fantasy, but a lot of people are listening to those lyrics and they're fantasizing and imagining either stories that involve themselves or involve the artist, or in many cases, they're just made up stories. That's rewarding to people. And there mm. come, there's their dopamine from, uh, from a record with lyrics that are evocative. Yeah. Well, as we know, Loretta Lynn died today. And if there is one song that I think of when I think of powerful lyrics or a song blowing up because of the lyrics, I think of The Pill. So let's hear a little bit of it right now and then talk about it. You and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. 
I'm tearing down your brooder house Cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home While you had all your fun And every year that's gone by Another baby's come There's gonna be some changes made Right here on Nursery Hill You set this chicken your last time Cause now I've got the pill Loretta Lynn, the pill. First, Susan Rogers, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about Loretta Lynn. Please, yes, I'd like to. What a great loss. What a loss. She was a a lodestar for country musicians, and certainly for women. Speaking of lyrics, one of the things that she was a genius at doing for us was writing lyrics that were simple yet deep. Many of her songs, including this one, touched on deep problems. And it's really hard to take complexity and to render it in a really simple form. The thing that we loved about about Loretta is when you listen to her lyrics, she, it seemed to you like she's someone you could sit at a kitchen table with and have a cup of coffee with. You could tell her your problems. She'd tell you yours. She was just like a smart friend who knew what your life was like and the problems you were hoping to solve. Um, that relatability was coupled with top-flight musicians, musicians who knew enough to show off their expertise, but never, ever, ever get in the way of those lyrics. What they understood in the studio was, we are framing someone telling us a story, a story we want to pay attention to. Now, other forms of music uh, don't emphasize the lyrics as much. It's okay to ignore the lyrics, and you're still getting plenty of reward from the music. But in Loretta's music, followed by Dolly Parton, followed by Carrie Underwood, the women who followed, and men who followed in her footsteps, um, Loretta showed us how to make records that would be successful and would stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Susan Rogers, who's written This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And you, are listeners, what's your favorite piece of recorded music and why? What attracts you to it? The rhythm, the lyrics, the melody. Email forum at kqed.org. Post it on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
That's often wet by Prince. And we're talking with Susan Rogers, who was Prince's sound engineer and engineered Purple Rain and was also working with Prince during his what's known as peak productive era in the mid to late 80s. Susan Rogers has a new book. This is what it sounds like with the music you love says about you and is a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston. You, our listeners, can join with your favorite pieces of recorded music and why they are your favorites, what attracts you to them, the melody, the rhythm, the lyrics. You can call 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. So, Susan Rogers, let's talk about Prince for a second. First, how did you come to work with him? I was working as an audio technician in Hollywood, California. I had been working in that role for about five years. I was young, just a couple of years older than Prince at that time, and that time was the year 1983. I heard through the professional grapevine that Prince was looking to hire a technician to be his full-time employee, move to Minneapolis, and and work for him. And as soon as I heard about that, I just knew that job was meant for me. He was my favorite artist in the whole world. I had seen him in concert. I had all his records. And um, I knew I could do it. And that, uh, well, my hunch was that he would like working with me because Prince liked working with women. So I, I got the job. And I moved to Minneapolis. And in short order, he transitioned me from the audio tech role into the engineering role. The audio tech is the person who repairs the equipment. Um, the audio engineer is the person who uses the equipment. Uh, it was a, a tremendous career break. It wouldn't have happened without him. And I spent over four long, very, very productive years with him as his employee. And you say that he liked working with women, and there were very few women. And so there was this part of you that was like, oh, I got this, right? Because <laughs> there's so few women. What do you think he saw or heard? Do you know in that moment of when he asked you to be the engineer and not the tech? You know, it was a funny thing. And at the time, I thought, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that the technicians never actually use the equipment. But I'm not going to tell him because this is what I want to do. I, I knew the equipment. I knew signal flow like the back of my hand. That was my gig. But um, I had never used the equipment artfully. I'd actually never mic'd a drum kit. I had never... Um, artfully used the the equipment. It would be like being on a movie set and going from repairing the camera to being the cinematographer. But uh, I thought, I'm going for it. And I did. And it ended up being a really good thing because uh, I had no preconceived notion of how to use the equipment. I had no sonic signature, as we say, no sound of my own. So Prince taught me his ear, his sound. And in hindsight, it ended up being perfect because that's what he wanted, an engineer who could facilitate his uh, recording goals, just get my my performances from my instrument, from my voice onto that tape and get it back. That's all I need you to do. So I, I was a good fit for him. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Let me go to caller Jaime in San Francisco. Jaime, you're on. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit about um, the, the power of the, the melody. So I am originally from Ecuador, and I grew up uh, without speaking any English. So um, listening to bands like you know Radiohead, in which the, the sound of the, the voice, the pitch, the melody was enough to, to really get you to love the band. With that, you know, regardless of what the, the lyrics were about, right? And you know, later on in my in my my life, also when I'm listening to bands like Sigur Ros, 
which I have no idea what mm. they're singing about. Right. It, it, <laughs> this is a, such a, and the voice is just, it connects to you. You don't need to know the lyrics. You can already pitch yourself, you know, in this Nordic landscape. So I, I think that it's very interesting how sometimes the lyrics, although people will really connect. Um, in my case, I think I'm more like a visual learning and, and this kind of images come with the pitch and intonation and the melody of the lead singers, um, yeah. regardless of the, the, the language that they, they speak. Well, I mean, thanks for that. And and I actually love Sigurás myself. So I, I I love that you brought them up because I actually considered myself someone who was really into lyrics and that the lyrics have to be something that directly speak to me to love a record. But I've learned or I've evolved maybe so that that isn't the case. But Susan, it feels like um, a good moment to talk about the, the four other elements of music listening that correspond and are affected by our personality and then also say a lot about who we are and those are timber, authenticity, realism, or novelty. If you want to just talk about a few of those that seem almost um, a little harder to, to pinpoint to mm. a certain degree uh, than, say, melody or lyrics. Right. Well, timbre is sound itself. And as um, has been said, sound is a special form of touch. Sound itself can cause us to feel something. So record makers take great care and an awful lot of time when choosing the instrumentation, the arrangements for their records, because the right sound is going to fit like a glove, the wrong sound, and it's going to clash maybe with the lyrical message. Um, authenticity is, of the seven dimensions I describe in the book, authenticity is the one that is the that is not, I shall say, strongly supported by empirical evidence. The others are research-based. But authenticity is something we knew about in the recording studio. It's your perception of where the performance gesture is coming from. So sometimes we can say that this singer is singing her heart out, or that this player is playing that bass part from the waist down. Just pure lust. Or we might say that a performance is coming from the neck up, meaning that someone is such a virtuoso, virtuoso he or she can, can exert incredible precision and technique in order to facilitate a performance. So it's our impression of where that music is coming from Personally, well, we all have our sweet spots. Personally, I like music that comes from the gut. I will take the wrong note played with gusto over the right note played timidly any day of the week. Many of my students at Berkeley in Boston prefer a technical perfection. We all have our preferences. Novelty, yeah. yeah, novelty and familiarity refers to what you think it does. Some of us like our boundary-pushing records. Some of us like our classic forms. And then realism versus abstraction is somewhat similar, but realistic records are made with actual physical instruments that you can picture in your mind's eye, whereas abstract records are made in the box, as we say, they're made uh, with, uh, with programming, and you can't actually picture what is making that sound. We all have our preferences. <laughs> well, let me go to Jude in Berkeley. Hi, Jude. Hi. Hello. Hi, what's on your mind? Um, I was listening to some music in my car. Uh, it was rock and roll, and I realized this is something I do all the time. When I hear a song I really love, 
I turn the volume up, and I want to, to roll down the windows and let everybody else hear it and without being obnoxious. But uh, I'm just trying to, you know, determine what the connection between volume and uh, response to music that you love is. Well, Jude, thanks. The role of volume and just wanting to have everybody hear, hear it. Mm, that's a very good question. Naturally, the more we crank it up, the more stimulated we are, and the more it dominates whatever else is going on in our nervous system at the time. You hear a record you love, turning it up is a natural reaction because you want more of it. You want it to be more stimulating. Now, rolling down the windows and wanting others to hear, thats uh, I relate to that completely. Uh, studies have shown that we regard our music, the music we love, as being one of the foremost indicators of who we are. This is work done um, about 10, 15 years ago out of the University of Texas. Uh, They queried college students, thousands of them, on how they let the rest of the world know who they are. And they asked them about things like movies, books, television, hobbies, their bedrooms, their fashion, things like that. Nothing was more significant than music for showing the world, this is me. This is the tribe I belong to. Um, music serves in this way as uh, as revelatory. Uh, I write in the book about how music is the most effective of the art forms at getting us to go into our own heads, so to speak. In technical terms, it means that the music you love most activates a neural network called the default network. The default network is what neuroscientists use to describe those circuits that get active when you're daydreaming, when your mind wandering, when you're fantasizing, when your mind is idling, and you're not focused on external stimuli, you're in your own head. When we listen to music we love, it lights up that default network, becomes the music of you, and therefore, sometimes, when you're enjoying the music of you, you want to broadcast that. You want others to know, this feels so great to me. Well, Mark tweets, every time I hear When Doves Cry, I get chills as if I heard it for the first time. Why is that? And yes, it feels different since he passed. Yeah, go ahead. Wow, 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 wow. The chill response has been studied. The technical term for it is piloerection, hair standing on end. Women are more likely than men to get chills in response to music, and musicians are more likely than non-musicians to get chills. It's still not known why music causes us to get chills. There have been some good hypotheses that haven't necessarily been borne out by work in the laboratory. Still a little bit mysterious. It is pretty well established, though, that when we get chills to to music, it's it's an ancient social response. That chill feeling prompts us to seek warmth, the warmth of others. It makes us uh, feel the need for that social connection. Many of the theories are revolving around that idea of chills, which is similar to uh, the kind of coldness that we experience from, from the temperature or from withdrawal from certain drugs. We are motivated then to get closer to others. That's, that's the latest work on it. Hmm. Well, answering our question, what's your favorite recording? John writes, Mac the Knife by Ella Fitzgerald with the Duke Ellington Band at the Cote d'Azur from 19... 19- 
67. It's a live recording that captures the thrill of jazz improvisation when the artists are in sync and in the groove. Ella creates a flow that feels completely organic, and then it takes on a life of its own. Duke and the band follow along as she goes and goes and goes until they dovetail into an ecstatic conclusion never gets old. Oh, yes. Yes, that's a man after my own heart. Uh, Ella was the goddess, the queen. Duke Ellington was the king. Um, They were sublime. When we talk about American music, I won't be bold enough to speak for music throughout the world, but for American music, they were as good as it gets. For me, Ella's solo on uh, Blue Skies, the canonical version of Blue Skies, was, (laughs) this is, it's bringing my mind to a complete halt just thinking about it, (laughs) was as good as music gets. Genius coupled with technique. Unparalleled. I want to ask you about how you listen to music. You talk about how listening is much more complicated and requires a lot more than just hearing, that it, that it's active, it takes effort. Um, but in particular, you wrote that it took you years to comprehend understanding and embracing your unique identity as a listener. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, it's being aware of the parts of your psyche that are getting fulfilled by a listening experience. If you ask many people about songs they love, they'll tell you eagerly the music that they love. But if you ask them why they love it, they're hard-pressed. Many people are hard-pressed to tell you why. Often they just resort to, well, it reminds me of a time in my life, an autobiographical memory. But those of us who are really deep listeners and are in touch with our listener profile have the experience of understanding cause and effect, form and function. We understand that when we put on this record and not that record, there's a specific itch that we need to scratch right now. And we're aware of which aspects of the music are scratching that itch. For example, when I need, when I need rhythm, I'm likely to put on a record featuring my favorite drummer, the late Al Jackson Jr., who played on these Stax records. To my body, his drumming feels as perfect as perfect gets. So much so, it's so perfect that if I'm out in public and I hear an Al Jackson record, I I almost need to physically stop what I'm doing because I'm halted by how great that feels. That's being in touch with your listener profile. I mentioned, um, well, your caller just mentioned Ella Fitzgerald. And, and if I hear Ella Fitzgerald in public, I'm amazed that people can be talking while Ella Fitzgerald is in the vicinity. I, I, I don't understand mm, it. That's yeah. being in touch with your listener profile. I guess the question that I have is around the word embracing, mm. because there's this part of me that wonders if you felt like the way you reacted to music mattered. And the reason I ask that is because there were a couple of instances that you write about where you really questioned, A, whether you should write this book because you're not a musician, and B, when you encountered Miles Davis and how Miles Davis changed the way you think about yourself as a kind of musician who plays a very powerful role as the listener in basically completing what music is trying to Mm. achieve. So I had always thought of listening as um, the end result, as the period on the end of a sentence, not important to the sentence itself. It's just something that punctuates the sentence. 
But over time, over, over the years, I began to recognize that as a listener, as a deep listener, I was actually experiencing a kind of musicianship that my own internal musicality, such as it is, all of us have it to some degree, my own internal musicality was in being able to listen and feel something from music. I was able to turn that awareness of my own musicality into feedback that helped musicians in the recording studio, whether as a recording engineer or, or a producer. Uh, later on, as a, as a professor at Berklee College of Music, teaching uh, the young producers of, of tomorrow. Um, this has helped me to be aware that when musicians are in the studio and we make music, we're on output. We're putting something out there into the world. But what good is it until it's completed the job? It needs to find listeners who are on input, and it needs to be received by a listener. A record can be playing in a given room, and technically speaking, in our cochlea, in our ears, we're all hearing the same thing. But in our brains, every record is different. Everyone is experiencing something unique from that record. Uh, it's it's part of the process, I think, of understanding what music is. It uh, involves understanding what happens in the listener's brain when they respond or fail to respond to a given record. Susan Rogers is author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston, also a multi-platinum record producer and was Prince's sound engineer. We're talking about why we love the music we love, what elements of a song or record speak to us, what's happening in our brains as we listen to a song. All of it with you, our listeners. You can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum, or calling us 866-733-6786. And this listener writes, I'm a huge deadhead. For me, the Dark Star performed on March 1st, 1969 at the Fillmore in San Francisco will always hold special significance in my heart. I've listened to so many versions. All right. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Mm. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about our musical sweet spots with Susan Rogers, who's written a book called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And you, our listeners, are sharing on 866-733-6786 by posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Nancy writes, my most loved music is Box, in which it seems to me that no questions are answered, but all questions are asked. Love That's Box. That's beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Stefan writes, I grew up in a musical family and I find that timbre, I guess I was saying that wrong, is perhaps my primary focus in music. Mm. As an example, every time I hear Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, I get goosebumps when Mary Clayton's voice breaks in her solo. Coupled with the heavy, distorted sound of the harmonica, I find it one of the greatest songs ever recorded. And let me go. To, sorry, go ahead. You want to say oh, something? Susan? Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking this morning about what a, an underappreciated harmonica player Mick Jagger is. Mm. Great, great player. Great player. Wow. Yeah, I love that record. Yeah, great listener. Stephen, let me go to, or Stefan, let me go to Daniel in San Francisco. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for waiting. Hey, Nina. I love your show, by the way. And Susan, this has been like an absolute master class. <laughs> I'm thinking about enrolling in wherever you're teaching. Um, I wanted to say I grew up as a latchkey kid in an abusive household, and music was my respite as I was basically grounded in my room. And rest in peace to Prince. Um, that was Purple Rain was like my seminal go-to album. I'd dance around in my room to feel better and you know get through the abuse. I ended up in group homes and foster homes, and there again, it was always my respite, and I started learning how to sing, and then writing, and it's Stevie Wonder's As that I was listening to on repeat while I transitioned into uh, attempting to start a 501c3, and it was my constant companion as I was going through self-examination and transformation, learning how to forgive my mother, learning how to forgive the past. I was watching Oprah like crazy, <laughs> going to a spiritual center called Agape in L.A., which basically teaches you law of attraction and also, you know, Landmark Forum, which taught me how to forgive my mother, which was hugely transformative. This was always the background for me, was great mm -hmm. music. And I wanted to talk about how it can shift your state, you know, neuroassociative conditioning. And I always gravitate to the things that, I feel in my gut, as you were talking about, it can be any type of music. It could be Stevie Wonder's As one day. It could be George Michael's Freedom. It could be, you know, any number of, of wonderful songs out there. And what I know. Well, Daniel, sorry to cut you off there, but yeah, those songs that you mentioned are such a great background to, to the things that you are describing as well, just to say great, great, great songs, great records. May I say, um, I'm sorry you had such a rough start in life. Maybe one of the reasons why you were attracted to Prince is uh, he also had a very rough start in life that did involve a lot of abuse. Um, the pressure of that abuse launched him, like pulling back a slingshot such that he achieved escape velocity and had a very great career. When we are adolescents, we are at our most uh, malleable emotionally. And putting on a record when you're hurting can give you the right attitude or the right words, the right thoughts to help you through it, which is why we will often have a soft spot in our hearts our whole lives for those artists that comforted us when we were hurting as teens. 
Well, Joshua writes, love this episode. One of my favorite recorded songs is Samba Pati by Santana. I'd be interested to hear her thoughts on how an instrumental artist's tone and inflection impact our emotional response, even when the song structure is the same. Well, isn't that marvelous? And an earlier listener mentioned listening to songs in a language, pardon me, listening to songs in a language he did not speak and yet getting full satisfaction from it. This is because our brains have evolved separate areas for processing melody. For most of us, it's in the right hemisphere above our right ear, and lyrics in the left hemisphere, and rhythm up top, and uh, timbre in a lower order region of the brain. Any one of those regions can independently connect to our dopaminergic reward system and give us a sonic treat, a little release of dopamine. So if you don't understand the lyrics, you can still understand what the singer is trying to convey. And that works for guitar solos and piano solos and saxophone solos as well. When um when a, a player, I'm I'm gonna use an example. Well let's no, let's go with let's go with Santana. When Santana has his hands on his guitar, he is speaking to you with his with his with his phrases. He's speaking to you with timing and with pitch and with intensity, just like our parents did to us when we were still in the womb and when we were infants. We're picking up on the intonation and getting a treat from that, despite it not having any words. Well, this listener writes, My wife and I were almost identical in tastes, no matter the genre. Important were the synergy between composition, creativity, performance, and though not always, beauty. Wow. Um, Susan, I'm wondering how, if we want to expand our musical tastes, um, what are some ways to do that? Or, or how is it that we do evolve when there is a lot that happens when we're in the womb? It sounds like there's a lot that happens from our experiences, as Daniel was pointing out earlier, in life. But But wondering about what that process is and if we want to keep it growing because sometimes especially as you get all the responsibilities of being an adult mm. <laughs> you find it harder to take the time to expand your musical taste yes this is a great question because we want to keep the list of things we reject or don't like we want to keep that list short so here's the way that it can work knowledge can influence, can work its way down to influence your receptivity. So um, we fall in love with records, and I write about it in this book, and we have this automatic process. It's a little bit like falling in love with a romantic partner. But if you can have someone you love share with you why they love and appreciate a certain style of music, a style that you might have ignored, that love, that affection for your friend can open your mind just enough. And then that description of that style of music can cause you to at least pay attention to it long enough and try to hear it through their ears. What do they appreciate about that drummer? What do they appreciate about that singer? What do they appreciate about that sound design? When you can couple that feeling of warmth and belongingness, social affection, with your ingestion of these musical styles, it can at least get a toehold on your 
liking circuits so that when you may not love this music, but you will at least have a greater appreciation for it. And in some cases, it may even crack that door open wide enough that you'll learn to love a whole new style of music. So did James Brown, Papa's got a brand new bag. <laughs> it was almost like an informal exposure uh, of sharing what somebody loves, right? That really did kind of open your mind. Let's just hear a little bit first. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about about what this song did, how it was introduced to you? Mm, I was maybe eight or nine years old, and Cousin Mike, you know how you always looked up to your older cousins because they were the cool kids, came over to the house, and he had some 45s with him. This was the early 1960s, and uh, he put on these 45s, and uh, this is, when this came on, he was showing us how to dance. Cousin Mike was showing us. Here's, here's how the kids dance to this. When I heard that record, it was love at first listen. Hearing it just now, I still feel that thrill from that record. Now, at that time, uh, the Beatles were, of course, popular, and uh, the Monkees. If you're a young kid, you'd watch the Monkees on TV. But, you know, yeah, that was okay. I, I liked that music well enough. But when this came on, it just felt to me like, oh, yeah, now that's what I'm talking about, if an <laughs> eight-year-old can have that feeling. And it was something about that groove and that rhythm. And it was the godfather of soul who just was so on that microphone and just so confident. It was instant love. It shaped or perhaps it simply revealed uh, a lifelong love for me, which would be R&B and soul music. That's, as Prince would put it, the street I live on. <laughs> and, and so why aren't trusting the algorithm, say from Spotify or other apps, a good way to have your musical, I don't know, evolution mm -hmm take place. Yeah, those things are functioning a little bit like dating apps, I suppose. I've never used a dating app, but I know how they go. So they say, you know, if you like this, you're going to love this person. Well, yeah, but love for a person isn't based on their features alone. And we know this, like... <laughs> You can have your list. All right, I need the person to be this sort of height, and I need this hair color, and I need, you know, this income or whatever. Yeah, and then you meet someone who doesn't meet any of those characteristics, and you're madly, deeply in love. So it's more than just the features itself. It's the sum of those features and how this person or object is functioning for you. That's that's what it means to be in touch with your listener profile is to understand when something's working for you and not rejecting it, not rejecting it in theory. I, I, I would, I do want to say that there are folks out there who are a little bit embarrassed about their taste in music. I've heard from these people. They don't like to share with others. They're reluctant to say what it is they're into. That's, that's wrong thinking. You, you should, you can never be a music snob and you can never put down what someone else is into. Uh, it's working for them. They like it. Uh, no more than you can put down their taste in fashion. Well, maybe you can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> their taste in fashion or their taste in food this is working for them let them let them be unique listeners and um, we'll all get along a little bit better susan rogers the sound engineer for prince's purple rain her new book this is what it sounds like what the music you love says about you and you are listening to forum i'm mina kim let me go to caller sky in san francisco hi sky 
Hi. Um, thank you so much, both of you. I've I've loved everything you said. Um, so the street I live on, <laughs> which triggers my <laughs> default network, <laughs> is um, some of the things I really love are PIL, Public Image yes. Limited, and I love um, New Model Army. I don't know if you know about the song Vagabonds, but I love that one. Um, Depeche Mode and <laughs> R.E.M. <laughs> and here's the thing. I went through a lot of trauma throughout my life, and I've had brain injuries, and I'm honest about it. But I started out with a pretty high IQ, and I've got a few reasoning skills left. And one thing I really have left is the capacity to write music. And I started writing music in the crib. I was given a recorder by a you know parental guardian, and they said, you know, every time I had a mood, an instinct, a thought, they said, write a song about it. And what I've found through my life is that is the most intact part of my brain. And I'm an okay songwriter. So I've got two questions. <laughs> two questions for you. <clears throat> First and foremost, I want to hear about the brain and its connection to music, yes. you know, separate, you know, with injury or concussions or trauma. But separate from that, what about female musicians who are aging? Do we still have a place in music? Can we still bring the music to the forefront, even without all the, you know, <laughs> the the uh, the other uh, things that are seemingly required by uh, the music industry? Mm-hmm. So neuroscientists say of musical activities, whether that's playing or writing or listening, that it offers a whole brain workout, so to speak. It makes us think cognitively, the frontal part of our brains, and then there are all those circuits I mentioned earlier that can independently, from the elements of music, give us dopamine reward from the low-level circuits all the way up to the highest. Music is kind of like offering us a whole brain massage. If it's music that we like, if it's music we dislike, we mentally reject it. That's a different story. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the music is activating your brain, and there are regions of your brain, whether the more cerebral things in the frontal lobe or the just sensation levels a little bit lower down, that can scan a record and decide whether or not to continue listening to it and whether or not it's delivering a treat. I'd like to say something about uh, older female musicians or younger female musicians, for that matter, as we all know, um, for many decades, women were discouraged from pursuing technical pursuits. Women mm. were assumed, it was assumed that women couldn't write as well as, as men could. Um, and, the, and then we discovered neither of those things are true. Uh, societal changes take a long time. Um, there are some men of my generation, people born in the 50s, who are just now coming around to the idea that was sort of revolutionary to think, that Joni Mitchell was as great of a songwriter as Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. It was thought that Joni Mitchell wasn't as great because, oh, I suppose they thought, well, she just writes music for women, which is utter nonsense because what Joni Mitchell record talked about just women's issues. I can't think of a single one. Joni wrote for all people, just as the late, great Loretta Lynn wrote for all people. Hmm. Now, as society is slowly changing, um, 
the youth of today are more open-minded to the possibility that women, women composers, arrangers, performers, writers, are every bit as capable as every man. <laughs> uh, I, I will say one last thing. In the late 80s, I was working with a record producer whom I love, and he said a sentence once that we regarded as quite controversial. He said, there will never be a female John Lennon. And those of us who were sitting around him, you know, we stopped and we didn't challenge him because he was, he was the big producer, but never be a female John Lennon. That was in 1989. He was wrong. And years later, he admitted he was wrong. Deborah writes, we've always been intrigued at the music choices of our twin sons who are autistic. One developed a love for complex jazz, listening regularly to Thelonious Monk and other jazz pianists. His brother loves all music, listening to everything from Beethoven to Sean Paul, but hands down Christmas music is his favorite. Music is such a huge part of their lives, and we're happy that they have developed their own unique music preferences. Let me go to Michelle quickly. Michelle, let's see if we can get you in here in the last 30 seconds. Uh, yes, thank you. Um... Oh, and I love this show. Uh, uh, yes, I was wondering if you could comment on a certain experience I have of music, which is it's like I enjoy it so much that I, I don't even listen to it as much as you would think because I, I have to sing and dance. And when I'm hearing that kind of music or other music, it sort of just takes me over. I can't really listen to the conversation. <laughs> and the yeah. other thing is that uh, well, I have sorry, Michelle, I, playing I'm, in I'm, my head all the time. Well, well, Michelle, I can totally relate. And let me see if I can quickly get Susan to comment on just people who they don't listen to it in the background because it just takes over their whole self. Yes, I'm one of those as well. Um, some of us have a higher degree of innate musicality than others. I was mentioning earlier how uh, you don't necessarily have to be a musician, a trained musician, to be musical. It took me years to finally accept that I was a very musical being, despite not playing or singing. So for many of us, and I write about it in the book, when music is playing, it is the dominant stimulus in our world and everything else is hard to concentrate on because that music demands our attention. I believe that we are not made. I believe that we are born. Certain brains just regard music as the dominant signal in our world. Well, Susan Rogers, thank you for letting our musical selves out. Susan Rogers, this is what it sounds like. Thanks, Susan Davis, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. All of this music Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.